The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Too often we rely solely or primarily on conventional medicine to treat symptoms and disease. But these can mask the problems, so we never get to the root cause of the disease. There are better choices. Welcome to Generation Regeneration with your host, Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does play an important role in effective treatment, but even more important are the daily lifestyle, food, and spiritual choices we make. Now, here is Sandra Guy Malhotra. Hello, everyone. I'm Sandra Malhotra, your host for Generation Regeneration. Thank you for joining me. Today, our guest is orthopedic surgeon Dr. Christopher Naji, who is also a strong proponent of preventative and holistic medicine, kind of like an awesome surgeon by day and Cape Crusader for holistic healthcare by night. Hello, Dr. Naji, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hey, thanks. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to talking with you about health, wellness, and anything in between. Awesome. All right. I'd also like to welcome our listeners to Generation Regeneration. Our goal with the show is to provide information and support for those who want to regenerate their bodies, minds, spirits, and relationships to others and to the planet. So today, we're going to discuss ways to regenerate the body with Dr. Naji as we get ready to embark on a fresh new year. So, Chris, you're a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, but also have a strong interest in preventative medicine and pursued a fellowship in age management. Can you explain what you learned during this fellowship that wasn't covered in medical school? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, uh, you know, and that to some may seem a little bit like a paradox. Here's a, a person who's an expert in bone and joints and muscles, and where how does that meld with an age management type practice or age management. And um, honestly, I learned quite a bit in my age management fellowship and in the training I've taken, uh, far different from what I learned in medical school. You know, in, in medical school, a lot of times you're, treat, you're learning about the treatment of diseases and the treatment of diseases specifically with drugs or surgery per se. And, you know, somewhere in my, I've been in practice since uh, 1996, actually been graduated medical school in 1990. So, you know, I've been mostly a straight line orthopedist until about 2009 or so. And that's when I started, you know, asking some questions about, you know, is what we're really doing as a, in modern medicine helpful? Is it correct? Are there other alternatives? And that's kind of what fueled the fire for me to dig a little deeper. And, um, as part of digging deeper, I did a fellowship with the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine and also with Senegenics age management training and started to look at health overall. You know, as, as you well know and our listeners well know, you know, in medicine today we have different specialists, a gastroenterologist for your intestines, a neurologist for your brain, an orthopedist for your bones, a dermatologist for your skin. And, you know, each doctor practices his little subspecialized section, but in many ways, no one's looking at the body as a whole. And if there is a, an, uh, an issue, you know, I guess you could make the argument that a family practitioner or an internal medicine doctor does, but then that person is immediately scooted off to the subspecialist. So, I mean, what I've gone through in my uh, age management training is they're trying to put all the pieces together, diet, exercise, lifestyle, stress, hormones, all of those things. So I learned quite a bit more um, in my age management training than I, like, I, you know, it sounds bad, I learned quite a bit more. I, I learned a lot of different things that were not really on the radar as much when I was traveling through medical school. Yeah, that, that's awesome that you wanted to broaden your horizons and take a look at the big picture. When we talked before, you had mentioned that age management focuses a lot on hormone replacement. Can you elaborate on that and hormone therapies and what they can be beneficial for and what some of the risks may be? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's a, that's always a, a controversial topic. And and asking the question, what did you learn in your age management training? You didn't learn in medical school. Well, hormone replacement is a very good representation of that. You know, it, basically, as a, in, in mainstream medicine, there, you don't really learn a heck of a lot about hormone replacement. You're more likely to learn about the drug it's utilized to treat a hormone deficiency that a person develops as a natural part of aging. So, you know, the age management medicine move or age management kind of grew out when some doctors, you know, started to think about other options for treatment beyond just medicines. And, you know, the way I explain the hormonal system and, you know, I, I you can inter- feel free to interrupt me anytime because I'll probably go on endlessly. But, you know, the hormone system is basically the analogy I like to use is it's like the wireless internet of your body. When you think the central nervous system, your brain, your spinal cord, all your nerves run out to your different muscles and your skin and your intestines. Well, that's the wired internet. The hormone system, hormonal system, is the wireless internet because you can't have a nerve that reaches every single cell in the body but you can have a hormone that reaches every single cell in the body. That's an interesting analogy. Yeah, and it, I, it works pretty well because that's truly what it is. And so I think a lot of the controversy about hormones gets caught up in the fact that primarily when people say hormones, they're thinking sex hormones, and that scares people. Sex is bad. We shouldn't talk about sex hormones. But you have the category of sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, growth hormone, but other hormones in the body, insulin, thyroid, cortisol, those are hormones too. So basically, taking a kind of overarching perspective, you really need, it's not just one little hormone here, one there, but you have to look at all of them. And, you know, hormones, if you're talking about regeneration, I mean, your hormones are what keep you young. And philosophically, when you look at why we were put here on Earth, Basically, the reason we are here is to pass our genes on to the next generation. And then once we do that, pretty much nature's done with us. So it has to find a way to kind of knock us off and keep us from being a parasite on the earth if we're no longer able to reproduce and pass our genetic information on. And so one of the mechanisms by which nature does that is our hormones start to drop or start to decline. And as they decline, that's where you start to see the process of aging. So, you know, in some ways, you know, we're playing with nature in many ways by replacing hormones. But the counter-argument to that is, well, that might be true, but we're playing with nature if you're filling a cavity, if a person's wearing glasses, if you're treating hypertension. So, you know, a lot of people get a little bit... um, scared about hormones as if we're doing something wrong, but that's actually the goal of medicine, to, to keep us well and keep us healthy. And if you have optimized hormone levels, you will stay well and healthy. I mean, it's, it's quite evident when you see a woman who's been on hormones since the time of menopause and you stand her next to a woman who's at the same age who has not been on hormones, just the, the degradation, the loss of tissue elasticity, the aging, the wrinkles. So um, hormones are actually a very beneficial uh, component of staying well and in a way regenerating or at least not deteriorating. Mm. Can you describe the difference between, say, synthetic hormones and bioidentical hormones? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) You know, by... in many ways, mainstream medicine says bio or the FDA even bioident. There's not an official term as bioidentical hormones, but basically the difference is synthetic hormones are hormones that are fabricated to have a similar effect to what your body's hormones do. They're not chemically or molecularly the same. They're different, but they have a similar effect. Um, bioidentical hormones are hormones that are chemically and molecularly exactly the same as the hormones that you have in your body. Now, why do we use synthetic hormones? Someone may ask when we have bioidentical hormones. Well, U.S. patent law dictates that a natural substance cannot be 
sold or advertised for a profit if it occurs naturally in nature. So you're not going to have a pharmaceutical company use a bioidentical hormone and make a profit on it because they can't by U.S. patent law. They can't get a patent on it and then call it theirs exclusively. Right, because a patent is granted for something which is unique and non-obvious and right. those types of things. Okay. Exactly. So, so they've created synthetic hormones, which they can state has this proprietary function. Or uh, as an example, you know, Premarin, that's the yeah. hormone that was uh, given to women abundantly. And Premarin actually is extracted from uh pregnant mare urine, thus Premarin, pregnant mare urine, Premarin. And so what has been passed on to women for hormone replacement for years has been synthetic. And, you know, I may be, they may be cutting corners a little bit. It's not necessarily synthetic. It's distracted from horses. But my question there is what's the average level of horse estrogen in a female? And so, you know, none. Yeah, And so that's why oftentimes a woman is just haphazardly put on Premarin. They never test for the hormone levels because as you go through your cycle, the hormone levels go up and down, but they go up and down in a predictable fashion. And you, you know, and it's clear to see what a healthy hormone level is in a young, healthy female. And those are the hormone levels you try to replicate when you're using bioidentical hormones. Um, but you can't even track those when you're using synthetic hormones because the synthetic hormones have no place in the human body. So uh, basically, in summary, a bioidentical hormone is a hormone that's identical to what you've had your entire life. A synthetic hormone is something that's made up in a lab or extracted, patented, and then provided for you and in many ways helps and has similar effects, but long-term can have many side effects. And so that's where, that's where the rub is, but um, most, most of the time people don't dig deep enough to, to realize that. And so it's easier to say, oh, don't do hormones. Hormones are bad for you. They'll kill you. And to actually do a little, dig a little deeper and find out, hmm, that doesn't seem like it's right. I see. Yeah. Okay. All right. So are bioidentical hormones more readily available today now that the findings came out about the synthetic hormones? Well, they are. I mean, fortunately, more and more doctors are jumping onto the bandwagon because they're starting to see that some of the typical treatments that we provide really don't work that well and in some ways cause damage. So there's been a movement with the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, Functional Medicine, a lot of groups that are realizing the, the significant benefits of hormone replacement. And, I mean, typically, it's not that hormone replacement is bad. It's that poorly done hormone replacement is bad. So it's not something that the average pra- practitioner is terribly familiar with unless, unless they've taken an interest in it on their own and educated themselves, and then they can provide that um, to their patients. So it, it is becoming more recognized, more widespread, and as um, some progressive-minded physicians are looking more to find out what they can do to help their patients rather than just pacify their symptoms, uh, more and more doctors are picking up treatment with bioidentical hormones. I see. Okay. Which is one piece of the puzzle of staying well or staying healthy longer. Okay. Very good. Okay, thank you for explaining the difference between those different types of hormones. We're going to take a short break right now, and when we come back, we can continue discussing what you have referred to as a hormone-healthy lifestyle. So thank you, everyone. We're talking about real health care with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Christopher Nagy today. This is Sandra Malhotra with Generation Regeneration, and we'll be back after this short break. Thanks for joining us, and stay tuned in to learn more. GMOs, or genetically modified organisms, are plants or animals that have been genetically engineered with DNA from bacteria, viruses, or other plants and animals. These experimental combinations of genes from different species cannot occur in nature or in traditional crossbreeding. Most developed nations do not consider GMOs to be safe. Right now, over 80% of the corn and soy grown in the U.S. is genetically modified, and we should be able to choose whether we wish to consume these foods or not. Visit non-gmoproject.org 
forward slash learn dash more. A new health and wellness community is coming in January 2015 called holdtreatment.com. As a practitioner, you can increase your visibility by creating a detailed profile, posting blogs, advertising online and live events, and accepting online appointments. As a client, you can learn about holistic healing modalities, research practitioners to find the best one for you, and conveniently book online appointments, all for free. We aspire to change the way healthcare is practiced, and together, we can do it. Visit whole-treatment.com to find out more. This is Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. To connect with Sandra, send an email to Sandra Malhotra at wcubedcommunity.com or tweet at Sandra G. Malhotra, hashtag WeAreGenR. She looks forward to your comments. Now back to Generation Regeneration. Welcome back to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Malhotra. Today, orthopedic surgeon Dr. Christopher Nagy is educating us about real health care. And right before the break, we were talking about the difference between synthetic and bioidentical hormones. And we spent some time talking about synthetic hormones. And I'd like to delve into that just a bit further before we get into the lifestyle choices. Uh, there was a very publicized women's health initiative study that showed a correlation between synthetic hormones and cancer. So before we move on to the lifestyle issues, can you comment on that, Chris? Oh, I'd be happy to. And that's where the bottom fell out, basically, for hormone replacement. You know, people were getting their Premarin, here's your hormones, and this study came out 2003 or so, and basically demonstrated that hormone replacement, or at least this is what the findings were in this particular study, Increase the risk of the, develop, the development of uh, breast cancer, increase the risk of heart attacks, clots, strokes, um, deep venous thrombosis. And so that scared everybody away. And so that, in some respect, became the final word or the final nail in the coffin that hormones should not be used. But on further analysis of that study, you know, and in many ways, I remember one physician uh, when that study came out saying, finally, finally, I don't have to replace hormones anymore. Um, you know, because now I have this piece of literature saying that hormone replacement is bad. But on further analysis, when you look at the group of patients that were treated in the Women's Health Initiative, the average age in that study was 63 years old. And that is not the ideal time to start hormone replacement. Hormone replacement is best started at the time of menopause. Um, they were looking to see if hormone replacement may have some preventative uh, benefits. And, of course, if you start it when someone is 63 years old, they've already had 10, you know, 8 to 10 years or more that they've been menopausal and have had a chance to start to develop atherosclerosis or other medical issues. So that was one, one issue with the Women's Health Initiative. The second issue was the hormones used in the Women's Health Initiative was Premarin and Provera. Premarin is the synthetic estrogen. Provera is the synthetic progesterone, of which progesterone is vital for optimizing hormone health. Um, and so, pro, and what it, the final analysis came down to, it really wasn't the estrogen as much that was causing all of the problems, particularly the cancer. It was the Provera, the synthetic progesterone. And basically, progesterone and estrogen live in a yin and a yang. Estrogen says grow, 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 develop, and pro- progesterone says calm down, relax, don't turn into cancer. The studies have shown that the higher a woman's progesterone level, the lower her risk of all-cause mortality, and that means basically dying of anything. So it, it, the major cul- culprit in the Women's Health Initiative was actually the synthetic progesterone. Now, unopposed estrogen or estrogen with no progesterone Two can lead to cancers in the future and other problems. So the Women's Health Initiative on reanalysis and reanalysis and reanalysis really has been shown to, to demonstrate not what initially everybody thought it demonstrated. Hormone replacement is still a good thing, but you have to use the right hormones, bioidentical, and the right, um, and they have to be used in the right ways, whether that's transdermal or oral. Um, there's a bunch of little issues there, too. So 
that's that the study that scared everyone away turns out not to be the be all end all as as you know science always evolves no one can say anything with 100% certainty for the most part of course death and taxes but um science continues to evolve and if you stop listening to what it's saying as we all did when the women's health initiative uh, came out you're never going to make progress so and you know you mentioned a little bit earlier before we went to break about a hormone healthy lifestyle and what i found if you want to reap the benefits of hormone replacement you need to live a lifestyle that would accompany and provide those benefits for you you know in, in modern day life we basically are used to going to the doctor the doctor giving us a pill and waiting around for that pill to make us better and if there's one thing that can be said for pharmaceutical drugs they generally work pretty quickly and pretty effectively initially, but over the long term, not so well, and ultimately could lead to your demise, basically. Yes. Um, so, and, and one's considering utilizing hormones, you know, for health benefits, wellness benefits. You also have to lead a hormone healthy lifestyle, is what I tell people. And that consists of your diet, which really needs to be real food. Um, you know, with all the processed, packaged, edible food-like substances we have these days, it may be something to feed our stomach, but it's not feeding our, it's not feeding our cells or our body. So part of a hormone-healthy lifestyle is eating a whole foods-based diet. Number two is also engaging in some type, of, some type of physical activity. I'm certainly not one for over-exercising or killing yourself in the gym, but the human body is made to move and be up and around. And so I recommend people exercise two times, if not three times a week in some fashion. Even if it's as simple as walking or riding a bike, you don't have to be a bodybuilder or a, a, a big-time crossfitter, but you need to do something. Uh, in addition to proper diet, proper exercise, there are certain nutrients or supplements that I think are important. Of course, that's a whole other topic you'll hear a lot, a lot of times in the mainstream media. We don't need vitamins. We can get all the nourishment from the, the diet or the food that we eat. Uh, you hear that on one hand, but then when you look back at the nutritional value of the foods we're currently consuming compared to what they were 50 to 100 years ago, even the USDA will tell you, yeah, they're not as nutritionist. Not, they don't have as much nutrition as they did years and years ago. Correct, right? Soil has been depleted and, and so forth, so the food is not as nutritious as it once was, even if you are eating whole foods. Right, right. There's a book called Eating on the Wild Side, I think by Joe Robbins, which talks about that and really compares and looks at all the different types of foods and the, just the degradation in the nutritional value. So um, the hormone-healthy lifestyle, that, that's a piece. That's a piece of the puzzle. And, you know, when I'd have people come to me um, and, hey, give me some testosterone or estrogen, progesterone, and, you know, and, you know, fix me up, make me healthy and make me young again. Well, no. Uh, you know, I, I can provide you with this, but it takes a little bit of effort on your part, too. The people that uh, didn't do well on hormone replacement were usually the ones not willing to make the lifestyle changes necessary to optimize their results. I see. Very interesting. So you pointed out the things that really need all, all the pieces of the puzzle that need to come together for this to work. It needs to be the proper type of hormones, bioidentical, administered in the right way, mm-hmm. given at the right time, which is the beginning of menopause, and then coupling that with a lifestyle, which is, well, just good overall in terms of whole foods, exercise, and so forth. Right. That's, okay. that's absolutely right. And, you know, a lot of people, um, one of the downsides specifically when I when we talk about, you know, starting at the right age, the right type, bioidentical, and even the right way in which they're applied. Uh, if you take estrogen in the form of a pill, it does re- increase your risk of developing blood clots because it causes some inflammation in the system versus using estrogen as a cream or a patch. That significantly decreases the risk of developing a blood clot or the other problems that are associated with oral estrogen. So, you know, in someone who's healthy otherwise and living the right life, they probably can take estrogen in pill form and be fine with it. But someone who does not do the things they need to do, you certainly want to consider 
transdermal estrogen cream or the patches. And, you know, I know I was um, talking down a little bit about some of the different pharmaceutical applications or the synthetic hormones, but there are, there are bioidentical pharmaceutically manufactured hormones. What's patented is not the hormone, but the carrying vehicle that it's in. Um, like in, for women, uh, the Vivel Dot. That's a prescription you can get from a regular, me- <clears throat> excuse me, a re- regular medical doctor that is bioidentical estradiol or progesterone, Prometrium. What's patented is the delivery vehicle, but Prometrium is bioidentical progesterone. So it's not just a, a compounded form of hormones that you would get, but there are pharmaceutically available brands of bioidentical hormones too. I see. So it seems like, yeah, the pharmaceutical companies need to do something unique so that they can get the patent and protect their intellectual property. That's right. And also charge something of a premium price on it. So uh, patenting the delivery method, that's, that's a very clever way to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, right, right. And it's, you know, they're, they're obviously quality products. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with using a compounded product because they, they're under the the thought process that this is, you know, these hormones are mixed up in someone's closet when, in fact, that's not the case. I mean, there's a pretty strict regulatory board, and there's always going to be a bad apple that spoils the bunch. And there have been some poorly run compounded pharmacies that give a bad name to everybody else. But um, I have no, you know, it's, it's the physicians or the providers' responsibility to find a good compounding pharmacy to refer their patients to. I mean, that's that's my belief. It, you know, you could, you could easily write for the uh, pharmaceutical brands of the hormones, too, but um, a lot of times the copay on those is far higher than even paying out-of-pocket completely for the compounded versions. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, thank you for clarifying the results of the Women's Health Initiative, because that was a very loud uh, study. And that may be resonating in people's minds still. So oh. thank you for thank you for pointing out the nuances to that and and the proper way to approach hormone therapy. Absolutely. So, yeah. So on that note, let's get ready for another short break. We are here today talking about real health care with orthopedic orthopedic surgeon Dr. Christopher Nagy. This is Sandra Malhocha with Generation Regeneration, and we'll be right back after the short break. GMOs, or genetically modified organisms, are plants or animals that have been genetically engineered with DNA from bacteria, viruses, or other plants and animals. These experimental combinations of genes from different species cannot occur in nature or in traditional crossbreeding. Most developed nations do not consider GMOs to be safe. Right now, over 80% of the corn and soy grown in the U.S. is genetically modified, and we should be able to choose whether we wish to consume these foods or not. Visit nongmoproject.org forward slash learn dash more. A new health and wellness community is coming in January 2015 called holdtreatment.com. As a practitioner, you can increase your visibility by creating a detailed profile, posting blogs, advertising online and live events, and accepting online appointments. As a client, you can learn about holistic healing modalities, research practitioners to find the best one for you, and conveniently book online appointments, all for free. We aspire to change the way healthcare is practiced, and together, we can do it. Visit whole-treatment.com to find out more. This is Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. To connect with Sandra, send an email to Sandra Malhotra at wcubedcommunity.com or tweet at Sandra G. Malhotra, hashtag WeAreGenR. She looks forward to your comments. Now back to Generation Regeneration. Welcome back to Generation Regeneration. I'm Sandra Malhotra, your host, and today we have orthopedic surgeon Dr. Christopher Nagy educating us about real health care. And we've been talking quite a bit here about hormones, which are very important for age management. And before we move on from the subject, I wanted to touch on the topic of diet a little bit more, and specifically the role of cholesterol 
in a hormone healthy diet because cholesterol is necessary for the production of hormones. So um, in the show that we did uh, earlier in the month, we focused on what we called nutrition hypothesis myths. And we talked about the lipid hypothesis where the correlation between cholesterol and heart disease was made and we were encouraged roundly to avoid cholesterol. And now we're learning that that is not the healthiest way to go for mental health. Dr. David Perlmutter has focused on that quite a bit in his book, Grain Brain. And also, it's going to be important for hormonal health because cholesterol is the basis. So, uh, Chris, can you elaborate on that point, please? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, cholesterol is a vital, vital nutrient, and it's a part of every cell in the body. And unfortunately, it's been given a bad name because of the lipid hypothesis. Um, cholesterol serves as the foundation for building hormones. If you have cholesterol is vital to the brain. If you look at the brain, the, the, the dry weight of the brain is 60% cholesterol. So when you think about that, knocking cholesterol levels down to near to nothing is actually dangerous. And studies show the lower your cholesterol, the higher your rate of dying a violent death or suicide or depression. Dementia the, also, right? Dementia, absolutely. Yeah. Multiple sclerosis. Um, so, and unfortunately, we're still living under the guise of the cholesterol hypothesis. You know, the cholesterol medications are a huge business, $29 billion a year, I think, in 2013. This is the statin drugs. Yes, for statin drugs, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. But if you really deeply research the literature and you look behind the curtain of some of these, everybody should take a statin, you should put statins in the water, if you, if you dig a little more deeply and see some of the side effects that statins cause and um, are pretty much ignored because they don't come out in the studies, but talk to some patients. You know, any medication that causes chronic muscle soreness, amnesia, all kinds of problems, erectile dysfunction. And so cholesterol serving, actually, if your cholesterol drops to less than 140, basically you stop making your hormones because cholesterol is so vital to your overall health. And 75% of cholesterol in your body anyways is made by your liver, not necessarily via your diet. So we've been told for a long time, don't eat fat, don't eat cholesterol, don't eat saturated fat. And as you talked about in your previous show, that's not true. You know, saturated fats were lumped in with trans fats, and trans fats are man-made fats, and they are dangerous. But cholesterol from the proper sources butter, cheese, coconut oil, uh, saturated fat from meat, lard from, from properly raised animals is all very healthy and beneficial. When I have a man walk into my office and I see he's on a, a cholesterol medicine, then I always look and see if I can find if they've ever checked his vitamin D level or his testosterone level because many times a man who is on a cholesterol medicine is also on testosterone and vitamin D both of which require cholesterol to be made. So um, it's just a paradox to me. You put a person on one drug, and then you need two or three other drugs to make up for the drug that they were taking in it and its side effects. So I'm I'm a very pro-cholesterol person. You know, I, I have no qualms with including more fat in the diet, only, though, if the diet is relatively controlled in carbohydrate intake, sugars. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my optimal diet is a moderate to high fat, moderate protein, and low carb. Now, the, the way you damage your um, cholesterol or create oxidized or dangerous cholesterol is to eat a lot of fat in the presence of a lot of carbs. Um, you know, we know the good, there's the good, the good cholesterol, the HDL, and the bad cholesterol, the LDL. You actually raise your HDL. Uh, by eating good, good, healthy fats. And and when you're speaking LDL, there's a big, fluffy LDL, which is safe, and there's a small, dense LDL, which can cause heart disease. Big, fluffy LDL is made by consuming fat. Small, dense LDL, which causes heart disease, is caused by consuming carbohydrates. So that was probably a long answer to <laughs> your, your question, but absolutely, getting, uh, having a cholesterol level that's too low 
does have an impact on your hormones, mm-hmm. and a negative what, impact. Yes. And what type of cholesterol level would you consider to be too high? Because it seems like the acceptable level for statin drugs keeps going down. And now we're not talking about putting folks who have a history of heart disease on statin drugs, but more of a statistical probability or risk. So what's your professional advice regarding, okay, when, when really is it too high for such that people need to get a little concerned? Well, that's a good question. And I, I don't necessarily look at that. The, I won't give you the answer to that in pure isolation because cholesterol is just a marker. Mm-hmm. A, um, a cholesterol, a high cholesterol, let's say 220, 230, 230, 250, which would scare most people these days when, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if your cholesterol was under 300, you were great. What's important when you have a high cholesterol is also to look at your cardiac CRP level, which is a sign of inflammation in the body, your fasting insulin level, because you want to keep that as low as possible, and of course you raise that by excess carbs, and your homocysteine level. So if you had a cholesterol level of 260, but your fasting insulin level was 0.2, your cardiac CRP was 0.5, and your homocysteine level was 8, in many ways I don't care what your cholesterol level is because there are many markers for heart disease. And, you know, we're missing the point by always looking at cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. No one's checking a fasting insulin level. They just look at your your sugar level, your glucose level. And cardiac CRP, which is the most sensitive marker of inflammation in the body, is not part of a routine blood draw. So, um, you know, I would say on average without checking anything else, 180 to 220 or so. But if it's, if it's over 220 and the rest of your parameters are fine, I think you're totally good. I mean, my, you know, personally, my cholesterol level, I mean, it's generally been around 200, 210. And, and, uh, but once I started consuming a little bit more fat, it went up. I mean, it went to about 230 or so. But, you know, which I guess I should be, oh, my gosh, it's 230. Well, I'm going to have a heart attack. But... That's 230 in light of an insulin level of 0.2, a cardiac CRP of less than 0.2, and a homocysteine of, of 9. So I'm kind of like, yeah, fine, whatever. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's hard to, that, that's hard to think that way because it's been pounded into our heads that cholesterol is the evil villain. And actually, <laughs> you know, if you look at some of the studies in cholesterol, as you grow older, um, the people that have the higher cholesterol generally live longer and live longer with their mind intact. So, again, another long-winded answer for you, but the cholesterol is one piece of the puzzle. Yes, it, okay. Very, yeah, very good answer. And it's consistent with, with what we discussed during the Nutrition Hypothemans show with a certified nutritionist. Uh, mm-hmm. She was also talking about diet and also talking about looking at the bigger picture and not just looking in isolation at an LDL number. Sure. So very, very good advice there. Okay. So that's great. I mean, a lot of great information here about cholesterol. And can you, can we move forward now to talk about thyroid health also, because this is also related to hormone health. And it seems like we're seeing a lot of thyroid issues nowadays. So can you elaborate on what may be going on there? Absolutely. Here we go again. Here's another long-winded answer for you. Oh, these are great answers, though. No problem. Yeah, I mean, thyroid disease is epidemic and in many ways, in my opinion, mistreated. Uh, you know, thyroid disease occurs about eight times to one in, in women to men. And that, that's for a number of reasons, but one of them has a lot to do with iodine. I, iodine's a vital mineral that most Americans are deficient in, but in women, iodine con- concentrates first in the thyroid, second in the breasts, and third in the ovaries. Um, and that's probably one reason, you know, the body's hunger for iodine. You're not, if you don't have enough iodine, you're not going to make thyroid hormone. But really, really probably one of the bigger reasons for the epidemic of, of thyroid issues is because of our crappy diet. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of the term Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is a pretty much an autoimmune disease where the body attacks the thyroid itself. And that often, and and that's not something that's routinely checked for. Typically, 
uh, an evaluation from a physician comes by way of what's called a TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. And we're basically told if your TSH is in the right range, then you're fine. When in fact, TSH is, it's not normal. It, it may be normal in people that are, well, let me try to reword that a little bit. If you have any medical problems going on, whether it be diabetes, autoimmune disease, obesity, a TSH is not a reliable indicator of how well your thyroid is functioning. And so routinely a TSH is checked, and if it's less than two or for some physicians less than four, that's fine. Thyroid's working fine. But in reality, TSH isn't even a thyroid hormone. I mean, I generally recommend just for a basic thyroid panel, check a TSH, a free T3, which is actually the functioning thyroid hormone, a free T4, which is the hormone that is converted to T3. And then if there's some suspicion of Hashimoto's or an autoimmune-type issue, uh, anti-TPO antibodies and anti-thyroglobulin antibodies, which is... Uh, the way to test if there's an autoimmune component to your thyroid disease. I yeah. see. So, so again, you're recommending a more comprehensive set of data to figure out what's going on with thyroid health. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's books out there. My tests are normal, but why, why am I still having symptoms? <laughs> you know, the TSH test, in my opinion, is in many ways used to deny patients appropriate care. Now your TSH is in the normal range, so you're normal. Well, what does that mean? What about why don't we check my other, you know, my T, free T3, free T4? So there's a lot of patients out there who are not being well served by only checking their TSH and then denying them treatment without looking at the entire picture. Interesting. Okay, very good point. And that brings us again to a short break. So we are talking about real health care with orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Christopher Nagy. This is Sandra Malhotra with Generation Regeneration, and we'll be right back after this short break. GMOs, or genetically modified organisms, are plants or animals that have been genetically engineered with DNA from bacteria, viruses, or other plants and animals. These experimental combinations of genes from different species cannot occur in nature or in traditional crossbreeding. Most developed nations do not consider GMOs to be safe. Right now, over 80% of the corn and soy grown in the U.S. is genetically modified, and we should be able to choose whether we wish to consume these foods or not. Visit non-gmoproject.org forward slash learn dash more. A new health and wellness community is coming in January 2015 called holdtreatment.com. As a practitioner, you can increase your visibility by creating a detailed profile, posting blogs, advertising online and live events, and accepting online appointments. As a client, you can learn about holistic healing modalities, research practitioners to find the best one for you, and conveniently book online appointments, all for free. We aspire to change the way healthcare is practiced, and together, we can do it. Visit whole-treatment.com to find out more. This is Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. To connect with Sandra, send an email to Sandra Malhotra at wcubedcommunity.com or tweet at Sandra G. Malhotra, hashtag WeAreGenR. She looks forward to your comments. Now back to Generation Regeneration. Welcome back to Generation Regeneration. I'm Sandra Malhotra, your host, and today we have orthopedic surgeon Dr. Christopher Nagy, and he is educating us about so many interesting topics today. Right before the break, we were talking about thyroid health, and you made mention of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And why don't we delve into that a little bit more, because that seems like an important topic as well. Would you like to elaborate on that point? Oh, sure. Yeah. Hashimoto's is, is actually an autoimmune disease, and, uh, and maybe expanding this topic a little bit more uh, out to more autoimmune disease, which is one of the fastest-growing problems in American health. I mean, autoimmune diseases are 
jumping up here, there, and everywhere. I mean, I'm sure you probably know somebody with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or Sjogren's or any number of autoimmune diseases, Hashimoto's being one of them. And that's a major problem because most of the treatments we have in modern medicine for autoimmune disease is basically turning off an individual's immune system so they don't experience the symptoms. But what happens when you turn off someone's immune system? and you set them up for, up for development of other diseases or problems down the road. So autoimmune uh, diseases or problems are, are a, a big issue. Psoriasis is another one. Just thinking off the top, there's hundreds of autoimmune diseases, and we all have individual names for each one. But basically, globally, they are just a manifestation of the same root problem. And... Um, and this is a little bit of a an area of passion for me because most people think they need to get their autoimmune disease treated, and actually it can be reversed. And we're not telling them that in modern medicine. You have psoriasis, okay, you need to take this drug. You have rheumatoid arthritis, you need to take this drug. When in fact, if you address the root cause of why the problem happened in the first place, you can significantly ameliorate individual symptoms or even reverse their disease. And that's not an option that most people in modern medicine receive. Um, as, as far as the genesis of autoimmune disease, most of it arises from what's termed a leaky gut, or if you want to be official about it, increased intestinal permeability. And just briefly, what that is, you know, we have trillions of bacteria that line our intestinal tract. And if we have good bacteria, we're generally healthy, vibrant, and well. If we have a balance of bad bacteria, then we're likely to become sick, develop autoimmune disease, or any other problem. And so Hippocrates, the father of medicine, said, all health starts in the gut. And though he didn't have the means by which to prove that those thousands of years ago when he said that, he's actually quite right. Uh, we're finding out more and more, and as you see in the literature, the, the value of having a healthy microbiome or probiotics. But the genesis of autoimmune disease is generally leaky gut. And what leaky gut is, is when you continue to consume substances that irritate your gut, particularly the two most common are um, wheat and dairy, you continue to consume those substances and you don't feel anything immediately, but what happens is they irritate the gastrointestinal lining or the gut lining and they break down what are called the tight junctions. So what in essence they do is let undigested food leak out into the system that should not be there. And along with that undigested food can leak out some of those bad gut bugs. Your immune system mounts a response to protect you. But after a series of assaults over a number of years, the immune system may go off track and start attacking your own body parts. And whether it be Hashimoto's or psoriasis or lupus or rheumatoid, that's how autoimmune diseases develop. So if you, if you want to... And the problem is, in, in medicine, we allow those autoimmune, we tell people they're fine, they're fine, they're fine until the disease develops. There are now blood tests available with what are called predictive antibodies that can test how your immune system's functioning and predict five, ten years ahead of time, ooh, you're at risk for thyroiditis or psoriasis or rheumatoid. But unfortunately, that's not a test that's standardly used in medicine, though. So autoimmune diseases are a huge problem, and, um, and for a number of reasons, not just the food we eat, but also what's in the food we eat, uh, herbicides, pesticides, the, some of the genetically engineered foods that we're consuming. Uh, those really, in my opinion, sit at the base of the pyramid of development of autoimmune disease. So Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting how you point out the underlying root cause to all of these autoimmune diseases, which may seem very separate and discreet, but they're not. Mm -hmm. I can really dig into it. The one root cause is leaky gut. And you had mentioned wheat. So mm -hmm. that would be the gluten portion that, of wheat? Absolutely. Well, th yes, gluten is the main one we hear about, but there's a number of different... Uh, gut irritating proteins that are in wheat. Gluten's the main one and, and the sad part about that is a lot of times conventionally if you if you your doctor tests you for that, it tests for one one antigen that may cause it. And there's actually twelve 
and maybe even more. Um, so there's a lot of false negative readings out there. You have irritation, you have problems, you go to your doctor, he tests your level. Oh, you're fine. You don't have any, you know, celiac disease or non-gluten celiac uh, sensitivity. When in fact, yeah, the whole array of uh, wheat proteins hasn't been tested. So there's a lot of people who've tested negative that are still having problems and they can't figure it out. It's because only one of the uh, substances has been tested when there's many more than that. So um, I see. So are you, big, are, are you and your family mainly wheat-free as we far are. as your diet I mean, goes? Personally, and part of the area of interest for me is I have two daughters that are uh, have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you know, developing eczema, skin rashes. And, you know, skin rash is just an external manifestation of something deeper. And so being that I was in this field, I did some testing with Cyrex Labs. They're kind of the premier gluten uh, sensitivity testing organization. I did some testing with Cyrex Labs, and sure enough, one of my daughters had gluten sensitivity, another had gluten sensitivity and a leaky gut uh, because they tested, she tested uh, positive for antibodies to what's called LPS, which is what's in the cell walls of bacteria. So after getting that information, you know, at first you're like, oh, gee, look at this. But now at least we're empowered to do something about it. And so, so we went gluten-free, healed her gut, both of their guts basically by certain nutrients and no more eczema. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pretty much gluten-free. Now, are we 100%? Well, the girls are. Uh, my wife and older daughter, not so much. And I, I, but we're, we're probably 95% gluten-free uh, as a family. Okay. Very good. A lot of interesting information today. Thank you so much. And we're going to have to wrap it up because that's about all the time that we have. So I would like to thank you once again, Dr. Nagi, for sharing your wisdom and insights about real health care. A lot of great stuff there. Certainly. Happy to be here. And you can follow Christopher K, as in Kilo, Nagi, that's N-A-G-Y, on Facebook and receive his helpful posts about holistic health and wellness. That's actually how we found each other. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to Generation Regeneration today and for being part of the GenR movement to regenerate our bodies, minds, and spirits. Join us again next week. Until then, let's have more fun on Twitter at Sandra G. Malhotra, hashtag WeAreGenR. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Please join us again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. In the coming week, think of the changes that you could make to regenerate your body, mind, and spirit. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.